This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Come on, baby, do the Shares of GE chugging along. In fact, they're rising the most in a month as CEO John Flannery took the biggest step yet in his plan to revitalize the beleaguered manufacturer. Let's talk about what happened. What was the deal? Brendan Case is with us, uh, Industrials Aerospace and Chemicals Team Leader of Bloomberg News on the phone from Dallas. Also with us is Joel Levington, Senior Credit Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of analysts. Uh, Joel in our Bloomberg 1130 studio joining me and Jason Kelly. Hey, um, Brendan, let's start with you. So tell us exactly what GE did. Yeah, hi, Carol. So what they're doing is they agreed to merge their locomotive business with Wabtec, which is a manufacturer of railroad equipment. It's a deal valued at about $11 billion, um, and it's a major milestone for, for, for GE. This is a business uh, that's more than a century old, uh, you know, the locomotive business. Uh, and, and, and in addition to that, as you were saying, it's the, it's the biggest deal yet in uh, John Flannery's plans to try to turn uh, GE around. Yeah, and Brendan, um, it, he, he's had a he's had a heck of a first few months to to say the least, and has had to answer a whole lot of questions, not just about what he's doing going forward, but what has happened. Uh, certainly on Jeff Immelt's watch, his his predecessor. How much confidence do you feel is is instilled with this? Obviously, the market likes it, but what are investors telling you? You know, I think the market likes uh, likes it likes the deal today. If you look at the year to date performance of, of GE, it's not quite as as rosy a you know a, a, a picture. There's still a lot of doubt about the challenges that um, that Flannery is up against, and there's still a lot of uncertainty about how far he's going to go in terms of revamping the company's portfolio. Locomotives is a big, important business, uh, but not one of the ones he said he wants to structure the company around, which is yeah. aviation, power, and, and, and health care. And, and, and what remains to be seen is, is, is what, what he wants to do with those businesses and whether he wants to keep them under the same roof. Hey, let's bring in Joel Levington. Joel, you keep a watch on the credit picture for General Electric, and I know that they've gotten some warnings um, from some of the ratings agencies. How does this change them? I know they get, what, a, a cash infusion of something like, is it two point something billion, two point nine billion billion? billion. Yeah, right away. So that helps certainly the debt picture. But how does it really change things from a credit perspective for GE, if at all? Yeah, to me, if anything, it's it's marginally negative. And I would say that for a couple of reasons. Uh, The basic math is you get $2.9 billion of cash. And you get 10% of the company remain 10% of the pro forma Wabtec that will remain with the company. Uh, And maybe that's worth about $2 billion. So you're getting $4.9 billion on what is basically the best growing business uh, inside of GE that is over 50% aftermarket business where the margins are kind of at a trough level. It had been over 20%, you know, like a few years ago. Um, and it doesn't delever you in any way. Your debt, to, your debt leverage is still going to be about uh, over four and a half times on an adjusted basis at year end. So I, I would say at the margin, you get a weaker business profile and no real uh, Joel, it sounds like not a great move, Mr. Flannery. 
Well, you know, it depends on, you know, I, I think the GE stock, uh, keep in mind I'm a credit person, yeah. but I think the GE stock is reacting to $250 million of cost saves right. and the fact that GE will own 50% of that business, not really that this is some great win for GE. Uh, it, this was not the asset that they needed to fix in so any this way. So is, this is maybe a, a nice battle a nice battle won, but certainly a longer war ahead, it feels like, for Mr. Flannery. Oh, without a doubt. It, you know, and and uh, if anything, it tells you how hard it's going to be for them to be selling assets because it took them so long to do this right. deal with a very good asset. Well, and as Brendan points out, and I, I would love your perspective on this, Joel, as well, you know, this isn't even part of the business that he has told people he's really counting on to push this forward. This is a sort of old school piece of, of GE in some ways, right? Oh, you're 100% correct, Jason. Uh, you know, this is a, a very strong business that just happens to be cyclical. Well, you know, guess what? Power is very cyclical. Oil and gas is very cyclical. Energy is cyclical. Renewables is not only cyclical, but is kind of a terrible business from a margin perspective. So he's definitely got his work cut out for him. Hey, um, Brendan, come on back in. So what, what do we want to next see from General Electric, or what's expected by investors? Well, I think that the main, the, the main thing people are expecting is some sort of update um, about, uh, about the plans for the, the, you know, the core businesses, uh, the, the aviation, power, health care. Um, Flannery is going to be giving a very high-profile presentation uh, this week on Wednesday at the Electrical Products Group uh, conference, not clear at all if he's gonna if he's gonna use that as a venue to unveil the uh, totality of his plan. But it would be a surprise if he doesn't uh, if, if he doesn't use the occasion to at least provide some more details on his thinking as he uh, as he tries to find his way out of this problem. So Joel Levington and Brendan Case, thank you so much for joining us on this big deal. You know, Carol, it it strikes me that this is a story not only about a business and a stock, but also about sort of the perception of a CEO and and what he or she has to do when they take the reins. Yeah, exactly. I mean, first of all, I feel like GE has been a beleaguered company for some time, right? Impressive in that we used to think, you know, it was great in terms of representing the overall industrial economy. Jeff Immel got rid of two core businesses, whittled it down. People thought that was a good move, but it didn't ultimately pay off uh, and some of the investments they made. And now, you know, I do wonder what the future of General Electric ultimately looks like. What will be the businesses that really kind of keep this company going? And we've talked about this a lot, you know, across radio and television, sort of, you know, how the company has interacted with Wall Street, mm-hmm. both its investors, how it's interacted with the press, how it's interacted even with the local communities where it lives. You know, Jeff Emmel, one of his big last moves was to move the company's headquarters right. you know, from Fairfield, Connecticut up to Boston. It was supposed to sort of rejuvenate the company. Of course, that all falls to uh, Mr. Flannery now. Yeah, exactly. So certainly we're going to, a story we'll continue talking about in 2018. Shares of GE, by the way, up about 3%. Brendan Case, our industrial aerospace and chemicals team leader of Bloomberg News from Dallas, and Joel Levington, our senior credit anal- analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Yeah, this one's for the workers who All right. A lot going on in the world of artificial intelligence and jobs. So we turn to our old friend, Scott Landman. He's U.S. economy editor. He joins us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. Hello, Mr. Landman. Hey, Jason. Carol, how are you? Hey. We're doing very well. So this is fascinating. Carol mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, she and I spent a lot of time with the sooner than you think issue on Bloomberg Business Week last week, and AI was front and center. How is this playing through the workforce or, or how people perceive it may 
play through their their job prospects? Well, we're still in the very early stages of how AI is going to play out with uh, the workforce in the U.S. and all over the world. Uh, but what we found out today was a, a survey that the Brookings Institution put out uh, that shows that sentiment toward AI when it comes to how it will affect uh, workers and jobs is not that positive at all. Um, the, the survey found that 38 percent of Americans thought that AI would reduce jobs, 13 percent said no effect, and 12 percent said it would create jobs. So uh, people are pretty apprehensive about how that's going to play out. How about when it comes to ages or differences in ages and how they perceive uh, the role of AI? It was fairly uniform across age groups uh, and by gender, you know, with, with larger shares saying that it's going to reduce jobs compared with create jobs. I, I would say, you know, this is this is a pretty universally held sentiment, at least according to this survey. And in some ways, that that is the most worrisome, at least as I read it, that younger people were just as worried. You know, this is this isn't sort of like the old man on the porch shaking his fist about the robots coming to get my job. You know, this was young people as well looking around and just understanding, you know, where where things are going. It also struck me in this report is that there's global concern or, or concern in the United States, at least, that China is investing so heavily in this and some some fear that. From a leadership perspective, China may be as much of a leader as the U.S. is now in the not-too-distant future. Well, when it, when it comes to the leading country in AI, when people are asked what, which one is the leading country right now, 21 percent said the U.S., 19 percent said Japan, 15 percent said China. When it comes to polling like this, th there's not really that much of a difference in those kinds of numbers. And then when, it, when they were asked in 10 years, the answers were 21 percent U.S., 20 percent China. 14% Japan. So a little bit of a bump up in in, in China's numbers right. there. But essentially, you know, people think U.S. and China will be roughly equal. Well, it's interesting too, right? You've got the Made in China 2025 where they are on a mission, you know, not about creating just companies that can sell domestically, but to become global powerhouses. And they are, Jason, we know, really pursuing technology big time. And they have been after AI. I mean, there is kind of a global competition for AI engineers. We know that. Well, and one of the stories we talked about last week in the magazine was about Bitmain, yeah. know, which does all this cryptocurrency mining at at the moment, but its aspirations are really in artificial intelligence and, again, funded by the government, which has you know proposed that China should lead and, and create all these, I, I believe they call them national champions in, in all sorts yeah. of areas. Hey, Scott, what is it in terms of the White House, the government, what are they doing when it comes to AI as kind of a mission for the United States? I think back, you know, go back how many decades when the U.S. Uh, government was, you know, hugely behind the space race, right, and getting ma a man on the moon. But where are they when it comes to technology such as AI? I don't know if there's a really cohesive or comprehensive approach to AI uh, on the scale that China has. I mean, China has, has really put together this specific policy, like you said, mm -hmm. and a really aggressive approach to building up uh, technology companies, probably uh, compared with the U.S., which tends to take a more you know, free markets, laissez-faire, maybe some help here and there kind of approach to, um, you know, to building tech like that. Scott Lamon, U.S. Economy Editor down in Washington Press in our 99.1 studio. Always great to be with you. Thanks for your yeah. insights here.
You know what I, to be with you. You know what I thought, too, was interesting, Jason? There was a story uh, about Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, who's urging the Justice Department to kind of take a look at the power of large tech firms. We're talking about Google and so on, uh, that they – kind of the power they have over the U.S. economy. This is coming off of that 60 Minutes piece. Right. But we know big tech has been under the radar of the government. Well, big tech has really – come to the fore, right? I mean, yeah. it wasn't just y- – y- yeah. yeah, I was about to say Zuckerberg, yeah. Zuckerberg <laughs> uh, testifying on Capitol. That was obviously the most prominent thing, but it really laid bare a couple of things. I mean, one is the government is really looking at this very closely, but then when you listen to that test- – listen and watch that yeah. testimony, it was pretty clear the government – isn't quite sure what a lot of these companies do. There were a lot of uncomfortable moments where you had, you know, older senators looking and, and reading things that their staff had had clearly done, and perhaps googling what something exactly meant. <laughs> or talking about the Facebook. But what I will say is, let's not forget we've got Mark Zuckerberg right going before I think European regulators this week. And Europe, man, they have been much more stringent, much tougher, and you've got new rules going into effect this this week when it comes to data and privacy over in Europe. Totally agree with that. And one person to watch there. Obviously, is Margaret Vestager, mm-hmm. um, who has joined us a number of times here at Bloomberg and is one of the most vocal critics of uh, and, and uh, stalwarts of competition there. Facebook, sh- Facebook shares, by the way, just up about eight tenths of a percent as we speak. All right, everybody. Take a look at these two different funds, uh, the Brown Advisory Sustainable Growth Fund and also the uh, Brown Advisory Large Cap Sustainable Growth Fund. Man, not in a funk. They are outperforming and beating most of their peers over the last five years. Let's bring in Karina Funk. She's head of sustainable investing at Brown Advisory based in Boston in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York, joining Jason Kelly and myself. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much, Carolyn Jason. Talk to us a little bit about your strategy. Well, the way we think like about... Like, how do you define... Like, we were talking before we yeah. got going. ESG, it's not black and white. There's a lot of gray in terms of how people interpret what environmentally, social, and governments, what it means. Yeah, it certainly means different things to different people. So we actually just try to stay very focused for us. ESG and sustainability research, it's all about the fundamentals of a company. It's all about adding to or detracting our conviction on the fundamentals of a company. Do we know how this company makes money? And do we want to own it for the long term? Uh, so for our, my co-manager, David Powell, and I and our 25 analysts, we conduct very, very thorough due diligence. Uh, like I said, everything starts with fundamentals. That due diligence results in high conviction. We use that high conviction to build a concentrated portfolio that should, that we hope will perform well in the large cap growth asset class against our peers and against our benchmark, the Russell 1000 growth. So, Karina, I wanted to play a little bit of This Is Your Life with you because <laughs> as we were researching you a bit, we found out. You're an engineer by training. You went to Purdue, then you went to MIT. You started a, as an engineer and then made a strong pivot toward investment. T- tell us about that that life choice. Yeah, um, it, it's not such a meandering path as it may seem. When I was an engineer, I actually um, had the opportunity to work for large multinational companies, the kind of which I might look at investing in now. And I noticed that when I was implementing, frankly, environmental projects, water conservation, pollution prevention, or energy efficiency, those projects were always material to the bottom line. More often than not, they would also solve customer problems. They would help customers be more efficient, or maybe they'd increase product quality. And so that really helped to set my investment philosophy that large, financially stable companies have the wherewithal to actually create competitive advantages because of, not despite, their sustainability strategies. So, that really uh, 
we think of sustainability research in our fundamental process as just really gaining an edge on the strategy, operations, and fundamental opportunities of a company. So would you talk to investors how much do you encounter this idea of like, oh, ESG, it's a little soft, you know, you know that this is something that a management team may be thinking about as a nice to have, not as much of a need to have. How do you make the case? Is it just purely like rolling out the numbers? What, what's, your, what's your pitch? Well, certainly it starts with being focused on performance. Um, ESG as, as a nice to have, I mean, like I said, there, there are different approaches, but I think the, a big difference in the way we look at it is that Traditional environmental social governance research is all about risk management, Hmm. right? Do you have a handle on labor relations? Do you have toxic spills? Do you have lawsuits? Things like that. And yes, it's important to manage those risks, but there's not enough risk management or staying out of the limelight and trying to stay out of trouble that can catapult yourself into long-term sustainable growth. And that's why we're looking at companies that are playing offense, that are using sustainability drivers, not just playing defense and risk management. So do you go after the financial fundamentals first and then then screen for ESG or the other way around? You know what? Our sustainability research is really just indelible to the fundamentals. And that really just helps us stay focused and not drown in a lot of the ESG research that's out there. Okay. So we look for three things to understand whether a company's sustainability strategies are demonstrably adding the shareholder value. We have to see either uh, revenue growth, cost improvements, or what we call enhanced franchise value. And why don't I just give you a quick example of these to help the process come to life. Revenue growth, you can think of as a, ret- as a product or service that pays for itself, really, based on environmental characteristics. So Ecolab is a great example in our portfolio. We've owned it since inception. They provide cleaning and sanitation services to a lot of industries around the world. What do they do for their customers? They help them save on energy, save on labor costs, save on water, save on chemicals usage. They help Customers save money, and saving money is a persistent source of value creation, and that's a revenue growth opportunity for but, Ecolab. But then do you look at Ecolab and look at their own internal procedures or processes to see if they kind of live by Absolutely. ESG standards? That, that would be a part of it as well. That would be one of their drivers. Another good example in our portfolio of, of that specific cost improvement sustainability driver, that second driver that we look for are companies that are improving their margins because they're essentially best-of-breed sustainability stewards. They're fabulous at reducing their inputs, reducing their outputs, increasing efficiencies for their own productivity. And that last one, uh, it's about customer loyalty, what we call enhanced mm-hmm. franchise value. You see that a lot with consumer names where really healthy living, organic, clean label products are what's growing in a lot of the consumer space. Yeah, because it's interesting looking at some of, the, some of the stocks that you hold. It's not... It, it's not just the typical tech companies, although you have some tech companies. You've got some some health companies. You've got some science companies. You've American Tower, I believe, yeah. is in there as well. So, what are some of the drivers for for some of those companies? Well, you know, we're we're looking. We're open to, as one of my former bosses has said, better, cheaper, cleaner, greener anywhere in the economy. So this isn't about picking themes like water conservation and, and filling that bucket. So you brought up American Tower. You know, fundamentally, it is. A strong company, high, high recurring revenue, huge revenue visibility. Um, And what we liked about it versus actually the other two tower companies that are publicly traded out there, we think American Tower has built a competitive advantage because we noticed that they actually exceed EPA standards for environmental and wildlife management. You ask yourself, in, 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 an, in an industry where customers really don't have a choice, if, you, if you're a carrier and you need coverage, 
you, you go with that tower. You have no choice. But for American Tower to exceed their environmental standards, that makes them a preferred partner, especially in emerging markets where you uh-huh. have to deal with power quality issues. Right. Right. So what about something like Alphabet, which is also among your top holdings? And I'm thinking about 60 Minutes at a report. But more broadly, you know, Jason, I keep talking about these large, big tech companies. Mm-hmm. They're under the radar of the government. Yeah. They're looking at data privacy issues and so on and so forth and potential abuses of that use of that data. How does that factor into your equa- equation? Could you potentially kick Alphabet out because they're not so cool on this stuff? A- a- absolutely. I mean, there are. You and know, I'm not some saying the... they are, but I'm saying that this is something they're certainly being looked at. Well, Farrell, you make a great point with all of these, uh, particularly the, the social media and, and, yeah. uh, and networking companies, uh, privacy, data issues, regulatory risks, sometimes governance risks, those have been key risks for a very long time, not just since recent headlines. And so we have to absolutely assess those risks. Every investment have, has risks, and we have to assess whether the, op- whether the opportunities outweigh those. We've owned Alphabet since inception uh, for over eight years. I mean, they have unparalleled leadership in multiple markets like right. search and video. So what would make you kick them out, though? If the risks outweigh the benefits and if those risks actually we see either in, you know, in the short or long term, if we see that they will actually flow through into the financials. And, but one thing that we saw about Alphabet and about a lot of our tech companies early on is that they are stronger and more competitive, the ones that ha- pay attention to their environmental footprint, the ones that have the low power usage efficiency, PUE, it's mm-hmm. a key industry metric. And a company like Alphabet saves literally billions of dollars a year because of their meticulous attention to hardware, software optimization, data center, management, Interesting, interesting. As I said, you guys have been um, a top performer over the last five years. Yeah, so interesting to see where this goes next because clearly the market is moving your way in in a lot of cases. Karina Funk, thank thank you. you so much. Head of Sustainable Investing at Brown Advisory based in Boston in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. This is Bloomberg. All right. Electric Avenue, indeed. A man who knows a lot about that is our own Salim Morsi. He is the advanced transport analyst for Bloomberg New Energy Finance. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Hello, Salim. Hi. So putting some numbers around what is happening with the EV market, 2040, where are we going to be? So broadly, we think essentially electrification is going to be a a significant factor in how powertrains evolve over the coming 10, 15, 20 years. What's happening is battery prices are falling faster than many people thought. So we've been surveying the market for about seven to eight years, and they've fallen about 80% from $1,000 a kilowatt hour to 200. And we expect that to continue. As that continues, it will unlock uh, the consumer markets for EVs. And we think up to half of new car sales in 2040 could be electric. That's a lot. It sure is. Um, it's funny you say 10, 15, 20 years. That's quite a range, <laughs> speaking of batteries and range. But, I mean, could it happen sooner? I mean, I feel like that whole EV um, move is happening much quicker than everybody anticipated. That's correct. And so at the moment, it's regulation that drives EV adoption. So you see in China, you have aggressive subsidies and, and uh, incentives that are in place to force, essentially, people and auto OEMs to sell these vehicles. In the U.S., we have federal and state standards, similarly in, in, in Europe. But what we are interested in at, at Bloomberg New Energy Finance is understanding if the fundamental uh, technology drivers and costs, specifically batteries, could hand the baton of adoption over from regulation 
to pure play economics. And it is happening, to your point, in certain segments, in buses, for instance, we're seeing that, and in high-range high vehicles, uh, high-priced high vehicles. It's no wonder that uh, Tesla is selling these very expensive cars because that's where they can still make some margin in a world where batteries are still a little bit expensive. And let's talk about Tesla for a second because how much of its influence and Elon Musk's influence here is – almost psychological and how much is actual or when will we know how much this will actually play through are they the most important voice here right now so, if so, not them who so for the observers of this industry it is broadly recognized that tesla which elon musk acquired didn't found but they they created the movement of electrification but the, the what, what they should be cautious of perhaps is whether they get caught in the stampede of the OEMs, the old OEMs, BMW, Volkswagen, GM, Ford, that are now taking a very close look at this market and deploying billions of dollars of capital in a market that they know how to how to handle. They all woke up, I feel like, because of Elon Musk. And many people said he had the first mover advantage, right, in going after it. But now that everybody's kind of awake, um, it's very easy for them to catch up. You're kind of saying, eh, maybe well, not. Well, you know, the, the, the analogy I would think of is you want to, one wants to be careful that Tesla not become the Netscape or CompuServe of electric cars. You like that. You can be first, but it doesn't mean you're going to take the whole market. But that's what I mean. That They had the first mover advantage, right, when everybody was kind of being very mellow and, compl- mellow and complacent about it. But now that everybody's kind of awakened, uh, it's very easy for them to catch up at this point and that's, maybe overtake Tesla. That's absolutely right. And so when you think about the news today, and you alluded to this, this idea that Elon Musk with the Model 3 had this notion of a $35,000 car, sort of an electric car for the masses, huh. which seems to be somewhat <laughs> – Illusory, let's say, uh, at this point. And he talked about how it's more like $78,000, $80,000. What does that tell you about both the availability and maybe the consumer appetite for that sort of product? So it's a very good point. So in Tesla's defense, they're not saying that they scrapped the $35,000 vehicle. They still have an aspirational goal of producing it. But it is no wonder that they're dragging their feet because their cost structure does not allow them most likely to sell those cars with a grosser operating margin uh, that they can uh, be happy with. So the reason you're seeing these delays in the market has to do with getting their manufacturing and operating uh, procedures uh, up to up to speed. Now, to your question on consumer appetite, the number that is kind of thrown around a lot are these reservations for Model 3, up to 500,000 that have been made. And Musk got very prickly on the earnings call when he was asked to, to kind of flesh out what those reservations actually mean and have they been translated into sales. So we still don't exactly know. One of many things he got prickly about <laughs> on the right. analyst call. <laughs> That's the uh, analyst call that will go down in history. What about infrastructure, though, right? You can have all these cars, but if the inf- infrastructure isn't there for charging, so what? Where are we on uh, uh, when it comes to that? So we track this market, and it has grown commensurately with the sale or the fleet of EVs. So charging infrastructure, we refer to it as the plugs that folks have at home to charge their cars, but it's also public charging infrastructure. The most uh, the most famous one would be the Tesla supercharger. So it is a market that is growing. But what we find is that these are business models that are hard to finance and to hard to make going concerns. So they've typically been subsidized in the case of Tesla, rolled into their cost of automotive sales, or they've been outright subsidized by uh, the pub, you know by by government. So we expect that to continue because the, uh, these goals are aligned with broader environmental mandates that uh, have to be um, supported through through financing. Less than a minute here. And what is the single biggest risk 
to your forecast here? What do you most worry about? There, there are many, but I, I would say the, the, the most important one at the moment is the cobalt issues that we're seeing um, uh, pop up. So supply issues of cobalt, which is an important metal that goes into these batteries. Um, we expect, um, we expect you know, the, the, uh, the amount of batteries t- that are needed in EVs to go up 60-fold from now to 2030. And obviously, you need a lot of materials to support that. So we've taken a look at this market. And at the moment, it's true that there are supply constraints on cobalt. But battery manufacturers are moving to lower cobalt chemistries, and it's something that we think can be solved. Love, love talking about this. Come back, please. Salim Morsi, Advanced Transport Analyst at Bloomberg New Energy Finance in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. I'm Carol Master along with Jason Kelly, and this is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And here we are with our drive to the close, our guest, Quincy Crosby, joining us from Newark, New Jersey. He is the chief market strategist from Prudential Financial. Sorry, she, Quincy Crosby. Quincy, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, So tell us what is going on in the markets. We obviously are looking at an a lot of green today, up more than a percent on the Dow. Uh, Is this China, U.S. driving the bus here? Well, certainly. I mean, it, it, it did help. Uh, this is a market that, as you know, has been in, in a tight range, basically going nowhere fast. And what this did is that it, it, it helped alleviate some of the fears uh, as we went into the negotiations with the Chinese. I think the first hint that there could be something in the offing came when the president basically said, we have to help uh, the telephone company, the Chinese telephone company, get back in the business. And I think the chatter uh, in the market was, wait a minute, th- this is a little bit odd that we're helping a company that, you know, where our suppliers couldn't couldn't go there because we thought it had, uh, you know, military uh, applications, and that suddenly that turned around. So, yes, it, it did help. The question is how viable it is, but, you know, no one is complaining today. Uh, the market and all, all, and the beautiful part of this is it's across the board. You just heard about the small mid-caps, but they are, so in, in essence, a barbell um, movement. They're doing very well, but so are the big large cap names, the big exporters. So how do you, though, start looking at, now that we're getting some yield out of the Treasury trade, um, how does that kind of compare to what we're seeing in terms of equities, especially when you've got such increases in volatility uh, when it comes to the stock trade? Yeah, well, the fact is that the yields have been moving up. You know, everyone watches the 10-year, but watch the 30-year, watch the 2-year. But the 10-year has become the barometer. And uh, some people are already dubbing it the fear barometer, move over VIX, uh, watch the 10-year. But the fact is it's been moving up slowly. Uh, There was enough uh, discussion about the ability of the 10-year to cross 3% and then work its way higher. So the market absorbed 
absorbed it, it digested it. So when it happened, you know, I, it didn't scare the market. I mean, you didn't see the kind of sell-off that you saw initially when it crossed 3%. And the fact is, uh, it seems to be moving slowly. Now, that said, Carol, this week we will have a couple of reports mm-hmm. that could give us an indication of uh, the prices paid component in manufacturing moving up higher, because we've been seeing that from some of the very strong reports. Uh, and if that happens, obviously the market is going to realize that the Fed probably will give us a fourth rate hike. Uh, th- there's a premium on data right now. And even if I said we're just having a small regional report, the, the market is piecing these together. And the picture we're seeing is strength in the economy, orders moving higher, but so too are we seeing the, uh, the prices paid components moving mm-hmm. higher. So the market can deal with that as long as the primary underpinning for the move higher in the yields is based on economic growth. And, and we seem to be going into a little bit of a growth spurt. Uh, the economic data uh, have been surprising to the upside after uh, you know some disappointing um, data releases in, in the first quarter. So, Quincy, you you talked to Pratt about a pretty broad-based rally here, and a lot of tech names, it seems like, are moving both in the in the chip world and, mm-hmm. you know, looking at Intel specifically, Apple as well. Is this just China? Is there something else going on that is giving people some confidence there? Well, yeah, I mean, you had Micron uh, had a, a meeting today, and, and their guidance was was very positive and strong. You see the, the share price, price moving up uh, uh, actually ahead of where the rest of the market is going in, in tech. But, yeah, clearly uh, Intel is a big, uh, has a big uh, uh, business and, and, and footprint in China, as does Apple. And so certainly the headlines help those stocks as well. Uh, and then, you know, I was watching the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index, you know, which had been struggling. That's up uh, handily today. Uh, th- there's a sense of relief in the market. Now, whether, again, you know, we always talk about a relief rally when the market's right. down and suddenly moves up. This is a, a headline relief rally. And the issue, again, is whether or not it's viable. Clearly, I think the president wants to work with China, uh, hoping to uh, resurrect a meeting with North Korea. Maria. Uh, Quincy, uh, let me just break in for a second. I mean, when sure. does it become more attractive to hold on to cash at this point? What's the what's the tipping point for you? To hold on to what? I'm sorry. Cash, cash. Oh, to hold on to cash. Well, you know, you've got the two-year yield, I think, uh, at a level that we haven't seen since before the crisis. That's attractive. And if you and if you think there's going to be more volatility in the market, if you believe there's a better entry point in the market, uh, you perhaps want to have some of your holdings in cash so that you can then allocate uh, when, when we do see another pullback. But the question is, is right now, are you seeing the market? market healing itself from the volatility in the early part of, of the year. It's funny and, that you and, say that, though. Isn't the volatility we're seeing kind of more normal versus yes. a case of kind of healing? So don't we want to kind of see this? Just got about 30 seconds left. Well, yeah, volatility helps because volatility is the market's way of, of, of putting a correct valuation or, the, or with all of the information it has. And it does allow uh, investors to come in and, and, and take advantage of something we did right. not have last year. Quincy Crosby, thank you so much. Chief Market Strategist at Prudential Financial, joining Jason Kelly and myself. She joined us on the phone from Newark, New Jersey. 
Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.